Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a blogger on personal finance here in New Zealand. And on this podcast, I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. You'll hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are giving their tips and point of view on personal finance in New Zealand. Personal finance is indeed deeply personal. The woman you'll hear about this week wanted to remain anonymous, so I've chosen to call her Becky. Now, Becky described herself as a spender at heart who has to constantly battle against the desire to just spend, spend, spend. Although she has become aware of it at least, this desire to spend continues to occasionally trip her up. But there is hope for spenders like her, and while still a work in progress, she has come a really long way in a short space of time. But before I tell you all about Becky, I just have a quick word from Hatch, today's sponsor. I'm excited to have Hatch supporting today's episode because, for the first time, they make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. Hatch is Kiwi Wealth's digital investing platform. As part of the Kiwi Group family, they are 100% Kiwi owned and are committed to helping Kiwis live their best lives. Hatch can help you build your own personalised investment portfolios packed with the things you care about. It's smart to invest regularly for your future and now is as good a time as any to start. But knowledge is power, so kick off your investing journey with the Hatch Getting Started course. The Getting Started course can give you the confidence to invest when you're ready. Daily emails will teach you everything you need to know to buy your first shares on the US share markets and best of all, it's free. To learn more, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver start investing. I first heard from Becky in July 2018, so almost two years ago, when she had a bunch of personal finance questions for me. We emailed back and forth and picked up the phone for a chat at one point as well. So when we got the chance to have another chat and I could get an update of her progress, it was pretty rewarding for me to see just how far she has come. She said that going over her history with money, she is both a little bit embarrassed and also immensely proud and that she hopes that what she is about to share will be helpful and applicable to the people listening, which I, of course, think it will. She grew up in the Upper South Island with her stay-at-home mum, who actually later returned to her studies to do a PhD, and her businessman dad, plus her three older siblings. She recalls her first job was in a supermarket, which seems to me to be how so many Kiwi kids make their start into working. She was just 14 years old, and her pay rate was just $5.40 an hour before tax. She is 32 today, so this was 18 years ago, back in 2002. She remembers looking at this pay and thinking, I'm doing a lot of work here for basically nothing. And I'm pleased to chip in here and tell you that supermarket pay rates for teenagers have risen a lot since then. She had to go and get this job because she had accidentally racked up a big internet bill on her parents' account and the job was needed to pay off the debt. Of this debt, her dad actually helped her write a letter to the company explaining that this was an accident, an honest mistake. She was just 14 years old and she honestly didn't realise what she was doing and that she was going to have to get a job to pay it back. Although they did decrease the amount, she still had to pay for it. And her dad then made her write another letter to say thank you. So questioning things and having good manners were skills her parents taught her. But was being good with money, I wondered. She said she does not recall too many specific conversations around money, but she was always taught the value of money and she received pocket money as she grew up. 
It was $5 a week when she was young and then $10 when she became a teenager. Her and her siblings would have to do jobs around the house for this, but if she needed extra money, she always had to work for that and find other little jobs, like cleaning the car, that she could do as well. Each of her siblings had to cook one meal a week, and for her, this started at the very young age of just seven, which was impressive, and it has resulted in her being a great cook today, she said. Her parents were not keen on debt themselves, and she was taught as a teenager to never get a high purchase or to use lay-by. If you want something, you need to save up and pay cash for it, and they were quite strict on that, she said. Although she thinks she had the general gist of being good with money and understood the theory, she said that overall and in practical terms, she just didn't get it. She had friends who saved up their money, but she just didn't understand how they even did that and how they didn't just spend it all as soon as they got it on frivolous things like she did every time. And she said that not being good with money lasted well up until her mid to late 20s and then she finally began to work it out. Now, I'd noticed that she was able to recall quite specific details around money, like remembering her hourly rate as a 14-year-old, and I had said to her in our emails that she seemed like one of those people who is good with money, just trying to get out, by which I mean that once she is shown a better way to handle money or is taught some basic money tips, she would just run with it. She said that this was mostly true of her, and that once she got it, she really got it. It just took a wee while because that spending side of her personality was pretty strong. After school finished, she headed off to university where she spent the next six years training to be a doctor, so clearly she's pretty intelligent. Now, becoming a qualified doctor never just ends after a degree though, which she completed in 2012. She has spent many, many more years in training in various hospitals and areas of medicine before becoming fully qualified in her current field in late 2019. So to protect her privacy, I won't go into any more details about that, sorry, but her journey was a little longer as she also had two children during this time. Now medicine is a long, long road, but she has found herself in a field that she enjoys immensely, and today she is practicing medicine in the region she grew up in, where she lives with her husband and young children. This career choice does not come cheaply though, and it would be highly unusual for anyone to do it without debt of some kind. For her first four years, due to her parents' low incomes, she received a student allowance, plus she applied for and received a scholarship that paid for a lot, but not all of her fees and costs. She took out loans for the remainder, including for two years spent in a hall of residence, which I know in today's money cost about $14,000 a year. When you are studying medicine, your loans are not the usual student loans that we're used to. Instead, she used the Medical Assurance Society, or MASS for short, as her lender as they deal with those studying medicine or dentistry or veterinary sciences. It was actually considered a personal loan and she said that she thinks it was interest-free until you graduate. So her thought was, why wouldn't you use this? Her scholarship was a bonded merit scholarship and to be eligible, you had to also be eligible for the student allowance, which she was, and it would mean that she was bonded to work in New Zealand for a period of time after she qualified, which she was fully prepared to do. However, in her final year, the national government scrapped the entire scholarship and bonding program, meaning that she could go wherever she liked once she qualified. And she thinks it was actually a waste to stop this program. Now, these loans totaled about $50,000 by the time she was completely done. But as well as the student loan debt, which covered her course costs, she did also take on consumer debt. And I asked her how this came about. When she first started university at the age of about 18, 
There were many banks there spruiking their wares, and she picked up one of their packs of information. She said that they immediately tied her into debt. They gave her a credit card, her first ever, with no fees, and also an overdraft of $1,000, also with no fees. She said that because she was not good with money before getting to university, she was a very easy target, and she pretty quickly adjusted to not looking at the balance for what it was, which was a negative number, but instead looking at how much was still available to draw down on. She worked part-time jobs for all but two years of her training and said that several times she actually did manage to pay both the credit card and the overdraft off and she remembers feeling pretty happy about that, but she would then run the debts back up again. It never occurred to her to cut them both off because she thought, I'll just keep it there in case I need it, as a safety net if you will. A person who likes to spend is pretty good at justifying things with themselves and she would see things that she wanted and would put them on her credit card and then think, I'll pay that off as soon as my pay arrives. But then she would just keep spending regardless and never quite catch up. And she said that she got into a cycle of using credit, paying it down a bit and then not being able to pay it down at all. And the only way to stop this happening would be to cut up the card and remove all access to debt but she never really thought to do that at the time. Eventually, though, she did manage to cut it up, but that didn't mean she was done with debt. At one point, when she finally graduated and was about to start work in a well-paying job, she applied for another credit card, but was actually declined, so that gives a little bit of insight into how a bank felt about her ability to service debt. Becky met her now husband while she was still in high school. He left school, completed an apprenticeship, and still works in that trade today. So once she finally completed all of her studies, they were earning a great combined income of about $120,000 a year. But despite this, they were living paycheck to paycheck. So they took out more loans to continue to buy the things they wanted that would give them the lifestyle that they were after. Using Mass again as their lender, they borrowed $10,000 for a car on a five-year term, but they actually did manage to pay it off in 18 months. Her first year working was 2013 and they decided to get married and also borrowed $10,000 for their wedding, also on a five-year term, but they did manage to get that loan paid back within one year. Now this is the debt she regrets the most and the one which she considered her greatest financial flop, not because of the outcome, they are still very happily married, but because in hindsight she thinks, how could they be earning that much and not be able to pay for their own wedding with cash? She was working long hours at the time, so didn't actually get to go out much. He was working full-time too, so where was the money going? Any other mistakes I had to ask before we moved on? Well, about three years ago, she did buy a kitchen appliance, one of those Thermomix things that people either love or loathe, on a cue card at a cost of $2,200. She said it was interest-free for two years, but she paid it off in full within one year. And she said she had no regrets over this one apart from borrowing money yet again to buy it. She loves the appliance and uses it all of the time, she said. In 2015, and as things began to settle and they were both working, they started crunching numbers to see if they could buy a house together. She realised that they were eligible for a first home buyer's grant from the government and could receive $10,000 towards their first home. There are a number of requirements to meet, too many to mention here, so just Google first home grant if you want to know more. They pulled out all of their KiwiSaver money, money actually meant for retirement, and had just enough money to make up their deposit. Their house hunt was swift and they actually ended up buying the third house that they viewed. Becky didn't realise that you had to pay a cash deposit to the real estate agent. 
in their case, it was $10,000. They could not afford this. They didn't have that amount of money, but they managed to negotiate that figure down to $5,000, which they still had to come up with within just two short weeks. This is when she said that things started to change. This is when her relationship with money began to turn a corner, but it's a long corner to get around. How was she going to quickly get this money together? Well, a Reddit search turned up the budgeting software app YNAB, an American-based budgeting software app, and YNAB stands for You Need a Budget. And Becky sure as heck did need a budget. She said that like many others, she had tried budgeting for years, but it had never stuck for her. And in hindsight, she says her reason for failure was most likely that her budget was always unrealistic, meaning that she would constantly set herself up to fail. But by using this software, she said that it completely changed the way she looked at money at that time. It took her a month to get her head around it, but once she did, it clicked and it worked. So in a very short period of time, they managed to cut their expenses and get that $5,000 deposit together and buy the home that they're still in today. By now, I'd noticed with Becky that she would turn to debt first to buy the things that she wanted, and then she would work out how to pay for it, and she would then manage to pay things off quite quickly and before the agreed term, like the car, like the wedding, like the Thermomix. I was wondering if she could instead reset her thinking to put a portion of money aside on a weekly or monthly basis like you do when you make a payment to debt, but instead do this prior to purchasing something. It would be a shift in mindset to set the money aside before the purchase and not after. But it was not smooth sailing once they bought the house. And an email she sent me kind of sums up why. Becky said in one email, I'm probably actually a spender at heart who has to constantly battle against the desire to just spend, spend, spend. I've become aware of it at least, but it continues to occasionally trip me up. So although she had got a handle on money, enough to purchase a house and understand the theory of how a budget works, it didn't mean she had a handle on everything. And learning about money is a slow burn for many. Shortly after moving into their own home, they were delighted to finally become pregnant And although she did exactly the right thing and did save up some money for maternity leave, she didn't really work out exactly how much they might need. The plan was for her husband to be a full-time dad while she returned to work after a short period of maternity leave. So he was the one to take paid parental leave, which only lasts a short period of time. So as soon as their baby was born in 2016, they went from large incomes to a very small one. But the critical error was that they failed to adjust their spending to this new, much lower income. And this meant that they churned through their income and savings pretty quickly. And after just four weeks, Becky had to go back to work, just part-time initially, to get some money coming in. Becky was needed at work. She had a really supportive workplace. She was feeling pretty good and they needed the money. She said that in hindsight, she was one of those classic high-achieving mothers who had expectations of herself that were too high and she just wouldn't slow down. She instead tried to do everything she did before parenthood and more. She took on other paid jobs, lots of bits and pieces, and that also included some travel and a lot of organisation to juggle it all. Plus she was also dealing with the mum guilt for not being a full-time mother to her baby. Friends in society had a few things to say about this role reversal, even though she knew that her husband had things well under control. As a result of the demands of a new baby and working too hard and not adjusting to her new situation, she developed postnatal depression, something that snuck up on her as it does for many. 
On one particular day, she thought she had the day off and was at home with her baby when her work called and asked where she was. She was due in an appointment and her client was waiting. Where was she? Well, she frantically found a carer for her child, raced in there, burst into tears, yet managed to get through the appointment. But as she looked at her online diary for the next client, she saw each appointment disappear from the screen in front of her as they were each deleted. Her colleagues had cancelled all of her appointments and they instead gently told her to go home and take the time she needed and they would support her throughout. Becky had well and truly hit the wall and it was only a lot of crying, speaking to a GP and then a psychologist, taking time out and counselling herself as well that eventually led her to her diagnosis of postnatal depression. But it was a rough, rough 18 months. Her husband went back to work part-time when their baby was nine months old and she began to work part-time herself and they would just tag-team the parenting and she said that they still do it this way today. Although she was trying, budgeting totally went haywire and out of the window during this time, but they still had bills to pay. With YNAB, she did no tracking throughout this time. She did still use it, but as more of a retrospective tracker of their spending instead of working in real time and projecting forward. She would input their expenses and income and was in a constant stress of overspending and was constantly running behind. Although she had always set aside money to pay her tax, she had to borrow from this account to pay their bills. She now had to save up to pay a tax bill that was now overdue. Things were a right mess. In 2018, when her child was about two years old, she had slowly been working to clear her head and get things back on track. She had read The Barefoot Investor and in July of that year, she also sent me an email or two. And when we chatted again in April 2020, she said that at that time she was still overspending because the budget she had created was still unrealistic. For example, she would budget $200 for groceries for the week, but they always spent $300. This was a source of frustration. How do you stick to a budget without overspending? The answer is to look back on a couple of months of bank statements and find out exactly how much you spent each week on groceries. If it was $300, you budget for that amount. There is no point budgeting $200 because you clearly always spend more. Now that you have an accurate figure, you can start to look at your weekly shop, the food items that actually end up in your cupboards at home, and start to decide if there are things that are excessive You can then just gently stop buying these things and over time you'll see your actual spend decrease and you can then lower your budgeted amount accordingly. Then she found a Facebook group, Medical Mums Parenting with Mindfulness Australia and New Zealand, and that was another turning point for her. She got back on track with YNAB, whom she credits with getting them out of their financial hole, and she credits the Barefoot Investor for allowing them to thrive now. She said that she didn't really have an elevator pitch or a sentence that would sum up her approach to money other than to say YNAB is awesome and read the Barefoot Investor. Around mid to late 2018 they were to become pregnant again and she knew that she didn't want the same thing to happen again as it did with her first child and it was at about this time that we actually spoke by phone because we had emailed a bit and sometimes it's just much easier to have a chat. She was determined to head into the second birth and spell off work far more prepared and she wanted to talk through ways to do it. She was sure in her mind that she didn't want to borrow any money when they had their second child. So by using YNAB she had a handle now on their monthly expenses, that is what it actually cost them to live each month and she saved up three months worth of those expenses 
and sent them off to one side in a bank account. From there, she said, things just started to come together. It was around this time that those university debts came back into the picture. These loans still totaled about $50,000. She had been paying chunks off them whenever she could, but when their first baby was born, she went down to paying interest only, and then she did something that in a way shone a light on her financial mismanagement. She was able to make a $2,000 lump sum payment, but when she received her next statement, something she'd never really looked at before, this payment didn't show up. So she rang up her lender and they looked into it for her and they told her that yes, she did pay it, but she put the wrong code on it, hence it not showing up on her account statement. Not only that, but every single payment she had previously made also had the wrong code on it and they had actually all gone onto someone else's loan. She said this showed just how not great she was with money because she has simply never checked before. She just sent the money off and considered it done. Now get this, she had actually paid off some other person's loan in full, plus she had paid extra so that that person got sent a refund of her money and not once did that person question it with mass. All up, they recovered $8,000, which they were then able to put towards her debt, bringing her balance down. And she said it felt like a tax return and even though she knew it was her money, it felt like a huge boost. That particular loan balance dropped from $17,000 to $9,000. Now, good fortune was about to come her way because she had applied for some grants and these were specifically targeted at being used to pay off student loans and they would bond her to work in rural areas, something that she was and is more than happy to do. So in mid-2018, Becky was to receive a grant of $30,000 and she was to use this to clear that $9,000 debt and some others. She then received a further grant which cleared all remaining student debt. Now that's a huge stroke of luck, the sort of thing that does not happen often. And when I asked her what she considered to be her greatest financial triumph, she said that it was paying off all the loans and debt, followed by getting through her second maternity leave in a far, far better financial position than the first. It just made everything so much easier and a real weight was lifted with those debts gone. And now for the first time in her adult life, she was free of consumer debt with a $380,000 mortgage remaining. Now, that gigantic headache of juggling and servicing debt seemed to be over. Or was it? And I asked her if she was now done with borrowing money yet. In late 2019, they decided to update their car and once again they turned to debt to do it. They even went so far as to get a loan sorted by putting the cost of the car on their mortgage. The bank even put the money into their account. It was $27,000. But the sale fell through on the car that they actually wanted, but the money is still sitting there in her bank, staring at her, inviting her to spend it. But she had a really uncomfortable feeling and she said that the default option of always borrowing money was starting to wear really thin, finally. But she said ringing in her ears at the same time is society telling her you would be crazy not to borrow money, interest rates are so low, you want a new car, just buy it. She wants to pay off the mortgage but they keep getting sidetracked and this made me think back to when she mentioned that as a teenager she just couldn't understand how some of her friends were able to save money and not spend every dollar that came their way. The same urge continues, but now the dollar amount is just so much higher. Like I said, we spoke in early April 2020, and she had just cancelled that loan of $27,000 and told the bank to remove that money from their account. 
and they have not bought a car. You know why? What pushed her over the edge? She watched the movie The Big Short the week before and that was an eye-opener and she realised that there was a reason the whole car buying debt thing felt icky and it didn't feel right. So that is what prompted her to cancel the loan. If you have not seen that movie, go and check it out. Becky is the second person I've met who referenced that movie as being quite influential on their view of money. Thank goodness I said and I thought when I heard her say this, note to anyone listening to this, don't borrow money on things that go down in value like a car. It is a depreciating asset and it will always be worth less than what you paid, particularly if you buy it new. If you want a car, save up for it and pay cash for it. What her school friends were managing to do when they were young was develop the ability to delay gratification and to think beyond the wants of today and focus on the wants and the needs of their futures. They had developed a strong why to stop them spending all of their money in the moment. My own why that makes me good with money is that I was really annoyed when I had to hand half of my salary to my bank each month to service my mortgage. I wanted to keep that money for myself and I never wanted to run out of money or be put under financial pressure where I lose my freedom to make decisions for myself and my family. And until you work out your why, you will always have to work quite hard to be good with money. Becky is still very much working on this and admits to not yet having a firm financial plan for their future. Let's instead call it a soft plan as she is well on her way. In regards to their one remaining debt, their $380,000 mortgage, On the one hand, she would really like to pay it off quicker, but on the other hand, they are not the types to completely sacrifice life now for some perceived benefit later. She does not think that 50-year-old Becky is more important than 30-year-old Becky, and because they have two kids who are now one and four, she does not want to sacrifice time with them now and have more time with them when they are 20 and gone from home, because for her it will be too late. For her, she sees that the reality is that to pay down faster, she would have to work more and spend less on things that give her more enjoyment now. As it is, they pay about $500 to their mortgage each week and they foresee it being paid off in 18 years when she'll be 50 and the year will be 2038. I must admit that when I heard this, part of me was willing her to get after this mortgage, but then I thought back to what she said about setting herself an unrealistic budget for her groceries, where she budgeted $200 and always spent $300. They were always going to spend $300 anyway, so she had set herself a goal that she would immediately fail at, and that is demoralizing. Getting your finances under control is less about math and more about emotion, and Becky is completely right when she decided to settle on this current mortgage pay-down marathon. She knows herself well enough now to know that she should not place too high an expectation on herself because it will just lead to stress. It is a budget she can meet and that will give her a sense of achievement and control over her situation. A chat with a friend who also happens to be a financial advisor confirmed to her that this is the right strategy for now. And as to those other things she wants to be able to have so that she can enjoy each day, by keeping her mortgage payments at an achievable level, that means that she can focus on saving up and paying cash for the things that they want, and that way they won't be forever running behind and trying to play catch up. She now has saved up an emergency fund of $10,000, which represents three months of expenses, and this, she said, makes her feel very, very good to know that it is there. Now, this money just sits in a high-interest bank account, earning terrible interest, as we all know, but the benefit and peace of mind of having it there far outweighs any interest it could earn. The emergency fund's primary function is not to make money, it's to act as an insurance policy 
in times of crisis, one which is immediately accessible and ready to go to work for you. The fact she has it there ready and waiting and has not spent it just shows you that she is learning what delayed gratification actually looks like. Becky wants to be able to have sinking funds set up for future expenses because in the past she's always had unexpected things cropping up and would always have to dip into her savings. For those who don't know, a sinking fund is where you are saving up for a specific thing. Say you want to buy a new laptop in six months' time because that's when you know that the new model is coming out. If it costs $3,000, you divide that amount by six months, meaning that you need to put a set amount of money aside each and every week. By the time the release date of that laptop rolls around, you'll have saved the total $3,000 and can just walk into the store and pay cash for it. People have sinking funds for things with a specific value or just as a place to save. For example, I have a sinking fund for my vet bills for my dog and my cat, and I just save $10 a week into a separate bank account and that just builds up until such time as I need to spend it. She has started a savings fund, and initially she didn't have a good plan. She thought it might just go onto the mortgage, but she said that their home needs a few repairs, and this amount could cover it. I think that she needs to give each savings fund a clear name so that she is saving for a specific purpose, and then she won't feel that she can steal from it and use it on something unrelated. If she is intending to make some bulk payments onto their mortgage, for example, then she should label that fund as such. As we neared the end of our chat, I asked her what she would do with $10,000 if it was given to her right now. Well, it turns out that it was a timely question because she had, of course, been receiving grant money, so this scenario was a real one for her. Formerly, she would have sunk it into doing up their house, but instead, it helped her pay off that remaining debt and fill up their emergency fund and also to be put to one side to cover them when she was on maternity leave with their second child. She agreed that she has been lucky to receive these grants over the years, and that they have each been put to good use. Throughout our conversation, she referenced her husband, but it became apparent that when it came to their finances, it was Becky who handled them. The main reason for this is because he is simply not that interested, and he does not want to be involved, and he does not really want the responsibility. She tells him what she's up to so he can be in the loop and although she does not resent him for this, let's face it, many couples have one who is more interested in handling the money than the other, she does resent him when overspending happens and she has to pick up the pieces and here she fully admits that they both break the rules. Because of this they each have an allowance of $100 each week to spend however they like or $5,200 each per year and they try not to spend beyond this. Now this is a big allowance for random spending money, but she said that if they didn't have it, they would spend it anyway, so this way she can put some form of control around it. Many years ago she said that he actually used to follow some subreddits that were all about being frugal, and he did try to talk to her about this, but she was against it, so he simply stopped, and now that she has taken over the money side of things, he has lost any interest that he used to have, he does not feel involved, and he does not have his eye on the goal so really he has no reason to stick to any budgets that she puts in place but she wishes that they could work together on their money more and set some common goals that they both believe in because it would help her to share the load and it would have them working towards a common goal and would keep her accountable. She wishes that sometimes he would nag her a bit and keep her accountable for her spending and call her out if she is straying and vice versa. I know that in The Barefoot Investor, the author, Scott Pape, is a big fan of carving out time each month for a date night, a time when a couple can take a break without the kids, 
go out for dinner or just a coffee and spend time focusing on where they are heading financially as a couple. Why? Well, he says there are three reasons why. Because it will make you happier, because it's the two of you against the world, and because there is no such thing as get rich quick. He says that, and I'm quoting him here, making a ritual of focusing on your money is the most powerful thing you can do, full stop. And I agree, and so did Becky, and when we spoke, she was planning on carving out time to do this with her husband. It's just too big a thing to handle alone, and marriage is all about teamwork. When you are trying to get your head around how to manage your money, it is so helpful to be able to talk to others about it, and I wondered if there was anyone else apart from her husband who she could talk to. There is her friend, the financial advisor that I've mentioned, plus she is able to talk about this stuff with one of her siblings too, which is awesome. With these two, she feels comfortable to discuss income levels and expenses, and I think it's great to be able to have these open and helpful conversations, because by listening to another person's relationship with money, you can gain some perspective on your own, and that's why these podcasts are so helpful to so many people. You get to hear the nuts and bolts of how other people handle their money. Whereas worrying about money used to keep her awake at night, it no longer does. When they would overspend, her mind used to be churning about how she was going to shuffle money around, but now she is feeling much more in control. Plus she said that she has insurance in place now to protect their incomes, as well as the other usual insurances for the home, the cars and the contents, etc. Currently they make a combined income of about $100,000 before tax, with both of them working part-time. She works 20 to 30 hours a week herself. Now, since I spoke to her, she emailed me and she'd updated her elevator pitch or the sentence that would sum up her approach to money. And it is to give every dollar a job to do so that every dollar is going towards a bill or a savings and an investment goal. So (laughs) I wonder if she is following her own advice now. I asked her what were her three main financial habits, things that she just automatically does now, and she said they were the following. When money comes in, she budgets it. She exports her statements and loads them into YNAB and then she allocates all of their spending. And she puts her leftover cash aside into a piggy bank and it always surprises her just how quickly money adds up if you just leave it be. So yes, she is following her own advice now. Now, when we spoke, the whole of New Zealand was in our second week of lockdown due to COVID-19 and she had noticed how much less they were spending because all the shops were shut, of course. I think that for many, this lockdown will be the one and only time you can get a real picture on what is actually a necessity and what is not. And for a lot of people, not spending feels especially surreal. And I actually heard from people during this time who were finding that they had money left over when each new pay came in, a thing that rarely happened to them. Becky has managed a couple of purchases online though, where she has tracked down one of her favourite clothing designers and supported them by buying a few items. She wants these businesses to survive this period of time and still be around when the world starts up again, so she wanted to support them and was happy to do so, even if it meant that she has no idea when the clothes will actually arrive. They are both in KiwiSaver. She is in a mass growth fund and pays in $1,042 a year to get the government contribution, and her husband pays 8% into an ANZ default fund something that definitely needs to be looked at because they were never meant to be the place where you left your KiwiSaver. Collectively, they are under saving for their retirement with Becky not investing enough money for her retirement years 
And at this age and stage of life, he really should consider being in a balanced to a growth fund so he can actually get some decent returns over the next 30 years because that's not ever going to happen in a default fund. However, of late, he has taken an interest in buying one or two index funds and each week he is investing $50 into these. So it's fantastic to see that he has found an area of personal finance that appeals to him. And as long as he just sticks to one or two very broad-based index funds, invests consistently for the long term and never sells, he will see some fantastic gains over time. These funds or any shares work best when they are not traded because jumping in and out of the market is a surefire way to lose money. Investing when done well is actually always a hands-off, boring process where steady investment over a long period of time will yield returns. So what books would Becky recommend to you and I? She actually sent me a pretty long list, but I think they are each worth mentioning because there'll be something in here that appeals to you for sure. As mentioned, The Barefoot Investor has been a huge benefit. She has reread it twice already, and following it is an evolving process. Dollars and Cents by Dan Airely and Jeff Chrysler. She said it is so, so good. It is all about the psychology of money, spending, marketing, etc. Very well written and co-written by an economist and a financial journalist slash comedian, always a good mix, and she thought she might reread this one soon, which I think is a great idea because she is constantly fighting her seemingly innate desire to see any money that they have spent, to delve into the how and the why beyond this should really help to keep her in check. Rich Enough by Mary Holm, she said not so much for the how to spend less, but really good for the what do I do with money that I've saved and she found it to be a really good primer to investing in New Zealand. She also mentioned Meet the Frugal Woods, as she found this a really good read, relatively inspiring, but she really wishes that they had included their actual numbers in this, instead of just talking about their privilege several times. And just so you know, they also have a great website, frugalwoods.com. Another book, Playing with Fire, gave a good overview of the fire movement, both good and bad, including struggles of making it happen. They also have a movie out of the same name. And she found the $1,000 project by Kenna Campbell helpful, as she did like the concept, but in hindsight she said that she didn't really need to read the book to get the concept, if that makes sense. And I think that this lady actually also has a YouTube channel, Sugar Mama. And note to self, just be careful with your search description if you get my drift. And next she told me of the not-so-helpful books, to her at least, but you might like them. Your Money or Your Life by Vicky Robin. She didn't think this one was as helpful or that the theory works as well for people who have a higher income. Becky works part-time 20 to 30 hours a week but earns a high income so she said if she used the logic Vicky gives she could justify spending on almost anything. Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey was a good book, just not as good or applicable to her as The Barefoot Investor is. Happy Money by Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton. This one has a similar basis as dollars and cents, but is more based on what the psychology says will make you happier. It didn't quite click for Becky as much as dollars and cents, but she thought that others might find it really good. Save, Make, Do, Slash Your Grocery Bill by Living Sustainably by Lynn Webster. Becky felt this one was just full of cliches and not so inspiring, but others might enjoy it. And finally, a New Zealand one, Tales of a Financial Hot Mess by Frances Cook. She thought it was good, but again, lacking real detail, and she found that she flipped between presenting herself as someone who knew nothing and being an expert, which didn't resonate with Becky, but it might with you. Now, in regards to podcasts, she enjoys The Pineapple Project, which is an Australian one, 
plus this one, The Happy Saver, but she said she hasn't found any other financial podcasts that helpful, but conceded that she has not tried too many. Now I'm nearing the end now and my final question to Becky was if she could retain all of the knowledge that she has today regarding money and she could go back to her 15 year old self and start all over again, what would she do whether it be the same or something quite different? She said she would not borrow anything. She would prioritise things differently and not borrow money. She knows they would be in such a different place today if they had followed that advice because one of the big things she has found is that the little costs plus the interest you pay add up to a heck of a lot over time. So it's best not to make that purchase in the first place. Now before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. Thanks again to Hatch for supporting the Happy Saver. They make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. So to kick off your investing journey, head over to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver start investing. I think that hearing about the lows and more lately the highs of Becky's story, it very much illustrates that for many of us, our relationship with money is a long journey of learning from our mistakes. Plus it shows just how darn difficult it is to change the habits of a lifetime. For Becky, one of those habits started at a young age, just 18 years old when she went off to university and was presented with cheap debt for the very first time, and it held her in its grasp up until quite recently. Debt is easy to get into and extremely hard to get out of, because it's not just about paying the money back, it's about changing the habits and the behaviours that lead you to borrow in the first place, and avoiding the temptation that is all around us to borrow for the things that you think you need. Debt is just so normalised in society now and to say no to it is probably the opposite of what a lot of your peer group might be doing. But when I speak to people like Becky, I see the huge burden that debt places on a person, something you don't get to see in the glossy bank ads offering you low interest rates and access to cash. Although we have never met, we have chatted a couple of times and emailed a bit over the last two years and I can see the awakening and the change in Becky as she gets it sorted in her own head of how she wants her life to be. She is a spender at heart and that is a powerful urge to overcome. But I think that when she and her husband come together to work out a plan for their money going forward, that she'll find the missing piece in the puzzle and working as a team is going to be a huge boost for her because it will share the load and it will keep them both accountable to each other as they plan a debt-free future while still doing all the things that they love to do today. Now, I really look forward to checking in after another year rolls by to see how far they have come. So all the best, Becky, and a huge thank you to you for sharing your struggles and your wins with all of us. So that's all from me this week. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please do hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com and I would love it if you could leave me a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please do share it with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast and I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.